When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. This is your 10-minute mystery edition, a little slice of intrigue in the middle of your week. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us as always, our storyteller and journalist, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. So, at the beginning of every Columbia Pictures movie, you hear this music. And at the same time, you see an image of a woman draped in a toga, holding aloft a bright shining torch. That original image was unchanged from 1936 to 1976. So I'm sure many of you have seen it over and over again in classic Columbia films. But I'm betting you've never given much thought to who posed for that painting. There's something of an argument over her identity. A representative from Columbia told a reporter a few years ago they have no documentation that would settle the dispute. But there are four women in contention. Two of them are from Ohio. So let's put aside the heavy stuff today and have fun with a lighter mystery. Who is the Columbia Torch Lady? The first of the Ohio women and the favorite choice of People magazine was Amelia Batchelor. Here's the opening of a 1987 article People did on her. Amelia Batchelor has appeared in more movies than any actress in history, and always in the same role. She stands there holding a torch over her head, looking like the Statue of Liberty's sexy little sister. They interviewed Amelia when she was about 71 years old, and she's got a very convincing story. First, let me tell you a little bit about her. According to her entry in the Internet Movie Database, Amelia was born Frances Amelia Batchelor in Springfield, Ohio, on February the 2nd, 1908. I cannot find another source on her birth, so we know nothing about those early years. We do know she was in Los Angeles by 1926. That would put her at 18 years of age. And People Magazine remarked on her Texas drawl, 
So apparently she got to California by way of Texas. Maybe she was raised there. Either way, she ended up as a stock contract player at Columbia, a job that paid $75 a week. For that, they could tell her to do anything from playing bit parts to sweeping the floor. Amelia always wore a little pink one-piece bathing suit to the studio. She said showing off her shapely body helped her get picked out of a crowd when they were choosing assignments. Amelia explained, Some of the girls used to think I was indecent for wearing that bathing suit of mine, but I wore it because they'd call in about 30 girls and pick maybe three, and I was always one of the ones who got the job. One girl even told me, No wonder you got the job coming here in that bathing suit. But most often, Amelia was used for her hands. They were fair-skinned and elegant. And whenever the script called for a close-up of a woman's hands, Amelia was called in. Her fingers, her palms, her wrists appeared in all sorts of feature films with the likes of Cary Grant and Gary Cooper. One day, she was walking around the studio in her bathing suit, and Harry Cone, then the president of Columbia, told her, go up to wardrobe and they'll dress you. There's an Italian artist who's going to paint your picture. Now, pretty girls were a dime a dozen in Hollywood. It was best not to question orders. So Amelia did what she was told, though she had no idea what it was for. Here's what happened next in Amelia's own description to People magazine. The Columbia people draped me in a big black velvet robe that hung all the way down in front. Then they sent me into a little fitting room with no windows and no air conditioning, just a tiny fan. This Italian artist, I can't even remember his name, was very slow. It was a big painting, about three and a half feet by five feet. And I posed for three days, seven, eight hours a day. I got a Coke and a break for lunch. The torch was made out of light material, plaster or paper mache maybe. But my arm got so tired from holding it up in the air that I told the artist it was going to fall off. So we got the prop man to drop a wire down from the ceiling. And they hung the torch from the wire. I just sort of held on to it and it helped. I figured maybe the painting would be used in a picture or that it was for Harry himself. I never bothered to ask. Well, two weeks after that incident, Amelia was out of a job. She said Harry Cohn told her to go to wardrobe again and dress in an evening gown and fur coat, then get over to entertain some exhibitors who were visiting. She read between the lines of his request and told him, Mr. Cohn, I came here to work as an actress, and I am not a whore. So when her contract was up, two weeks later, he let her go. One day, some months later, the reason for Amelia's painting sessions was revealed. She saw herself on the big screen at the start of a Columbia feature film, and that logo would go on to open every Columbia Pictures movie for the next four decades. Amelia said she used to tell people, hey, I posed for that. But she said their attitude was usually, so what? So she stopped saying it. Amelia continued her bit role acting career for a few more years. 
She played an Ozmite, one of those emerald-clad residents of the capital city in the Wizard of Oz. But she had to admit to herself she was never going to be a leading lady. Truth is, she didn't need to. Amelia Batchelor was a Renaissance woman. In 1938, I found an article about her designing and building houses, literally building. She did some of her own carpentry, plastering, and painting. At night, she was studying law. She was married to a producer, Keith Daniels, and she became an acting and dialogue coach to help him with his films. Then she started to make her own films. One movie she directed was called Red Star, featuring a Hollywood horse by the same name. I found an article about Burbank City Hall granting her request to have an actor ride Red Star up the City Hall steps for a scene. And after her days as a director ended, Amelia sold real estate. Long after all of this, Amelia finally got her moment in the spotlight. In 1987, People magazine found her living on Mulholland Drive in Bel Air and wrote about her experience of being the torch lady. The story got picked up and repeated by newspapers and television networks. Even Columbia's then-chairman, David Putnam, wrote to her saying her portrait has brought real pleasure to me and everyone who works here. Apparently, he had taken her at her word that she was the torch lady. But was she? The other woman from Ohio, whose name has been thrown into the hat, was an actress who did hit the big time. Her name was Evelyn Venable. Evelyn Venable was born October the 18th, 1913, in Cincinnati, the only child of Emerson and Dolores Venable. At Walnut High School, she starred in class plays, After she graduated in 1930, she went to Vassar College for a year, decided she didn't like being in an all-girls school, and transferred to the University of Cincinnati. In 1932, Evelyn was in a professional acting troupe when a Hollywood scout noticed her. She signed with Paramount Studios. Over the next 10 years, she racked up 24 films, She played in Death Takes a Holiday, opposite Frederick March, and co-starred in the 1933 film Cradle Song. She played in The Little Colonel with Shirley Temple and in the movie Alice Adams with Katharine Hepburn. Evelyn met cinematographer Hal Moore on the set of the 1934 Will Rogers film David Harem. They argued over her makeup the first day, apologized the next, and by the end of the week, they were engaged. They had two daughters. Evelyn retired from acting in the 1940s. Years later, she explained her exit from the spotlight, saying, I've seen so many Hollywood families come apart because of the mother's career. I never regretted leaving films. Evelyn became a faculty member at UCLA, teaching Greek and Latin, and organizing plays for the classics department. She received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 1960. Evelyn died in 1993, and according to her daughter, Rosalia Moore Woodson, 
she always told her family she was the woman in that painting. Now, we don't have the great provenance that we got from Amelia Batchelor. There's no detailed story about how it all happened. Rosalia said, My mother said that she never was asked nor gave permission to Columbia. But of course, in that era, the studios did pretty much what they wanted. Really, the only thing Evelyn has going for her is her face. If you look at a picture of her from that era and compare it to the torch lady, she is a dead ringer. Her family said they tried to confirm it through the studio, but as I noted earlier, there are no records on that matter. There are two other women in contention for torch lady credits. Claudia Dell was a former Ziegfeld Follies dancer who Betty Davis credited with being the woman in the painting. But Claudia worked for Universal, not Columbia. The final option is Jane Bartholomew, a brunette beauty from rural Pennsylvania who bought a one-way ticket to Hollywood and did bit parts at Columbia in the 30s, the same time Amelia was there. But like Amelia, she never made it big. Jane appeared on the Mike Douglas show in 1977. I'm not sure what the topic was, but it was there she talked about how she had modeled for the Torch Lady logo. So I guess the real identity of the famous Columbia logo will have to remain a mystery. But there is a 50-50 chance she came from Ohio. And that's it for our 10-minute mystery. We'll see you here Sunday for our next regular full-sized Ohio mystery episode. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your week. May all of your mysteries have happy endings. Welcome to Anthology of Heroes, the podcast that explores the most pivotal moments of history through the eyes of those who lived it. In this podcast, we don't spend our time recounting facts and dates. Instead, we follow in the footsteps of national heroes, kings, or ordinary people who lived and breathed the moments that shaped our world. We're not hemmed in by eras, borders, or religions. Instead, we seek out the tales of those who defied the odds and fought passionately for their beliefs. Whether they're right or wrong is up to you to decide. From Vercingetorix's doomed rebellion against Rome, to Osceola's unshakable war against the USA, all the way up to the inspiring Sobibor concentration camp uprising in World War II, each episode is an immersive listening experience, blending music and sound effects to really draw you into the story. Our episodes go for about 45 minutes, making them perfect for your commute, and are crafted using a wealth of historical sources which I list on our website if you want to learn more. I'm the host, Elliot Gates, and I'm thrilled to have you joining me as we uncover history's hidden gems and illuminate the faded pages of our past. Look out for the Anthology of Heroes podcast on Spotify, Apple Music, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from.